You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. In this Lenten season, we are embarking upon a sermon series on the topic of the cross. Why does the cross matter? What does this event from so long ago, which at first glance seems like anything but good news, what does it have to say to the living of our days now, to, the own, to our own faith and to our own lives? We began last week by studying the first word Jesus speaks from the cross, a word of forgiveness. This week, we turn our attention to the second of those seven last words, a word about salvation. Let us continue listening for a word from God as we hear these verses from Luke chapter 23, picking up where we left off last week with verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding Jesus and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then that second criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, saying, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Good and gracious God, send your spirit once more. That through its work, O oh Lord, this word that we have read, these words that are spoken, and the meditations that rest on each of our hearts would be glorifying to you. For you and you alone, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've been reading lately a book called On the Road with St. Augustine. It is in part an exploration of Christian spirituality through a contemporary lens, but it's also a study of Augustine, that fourth century North African bishop's life and faith and ministry. Some of you may know that Augustine, as a young man, struggled mightily. He was an individual who was incredibly unhappy. Interestingly, though, he was not unhappy on account of all the successes he enjoyed in life, but rather in spite of them. He was someone who pursued much and achieved much. He was educated in North Africa and then crossed the Mediterranean and made his way through Rome and eventually on to Milan, which at the time was the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. He went there in pursuit of many of the things that we all pursue in our lives, fame, 
Money, notoriety, love, power. And what's remarkable is he actually succeeded in achieving many of those things, but what he discovered was that none of them seemed to fulfill him in the ways that he hoped for, that he yearned for. There's an amazing little story in the book about a day in Augustine's life there in Milan that should have been the culmination of all of his hopes and dreams. He had been invited to give a speech on the emperor, which was a major deal. This was the kind of event that would be televised nationally, right? The kind of event where his mother would gather all the neighborhood neighbors around the television screen in her family room to watch her little boy do his thing. This was what he had been working for all those years, and now it was right there in front of him, but he was riddled with anxiety. The story goes that Augustine spent the whole day leading up to this speech wandering the streets of Milan sick to his stomach, so anxious. And while he wandered, he came across this drunk, destitute beggar. But this beggar seemed a counter image to Augustine himself because the beggar was laughing and telling jokes. Augustine talks about that moment as being the moment when he realized just how unhappy he was. Here he was, the pinnacle of success. He was what the world imagined him to be. He had this moment that he was being invited to speak words that people far and wide would follow. And yet he was miserable. But here in front of him was this embodiment of what the world might consider a failure a drunk beggar on the street, and yet someone who seemed by every measure happy, joyful even. Augustine developed this image to try and capture sort of the depths of despair that he probed throughout that period of his life. He talked about there being this distant shore that he could see. This place that was across a vast ocean of his life where he knew there was the fulfillment that he sought, the peace that he sought, the happiness that he sought. It's just he couldn't quite figure out how to get there, how to bridge that void. There was no map that he was yet able to find which showed him the way to that distant shore. And so he was left with a heart that was restless. And it's interesting to me in this reading we have just heard from Luke 23, we meet two people there on either side of Jesus who have restless hearts, don't we? We don't know much about who these criminals are or what they did to get there. The term that is rendered in the NRSV as criminal could just as easily be translated something like bandit which connotes in the ancient world someone who not only steals, but also someone capable of killing. These aren't white-collar criminals, in other words, on either side of Jesus. These are, in all likelihood, violent offenders of some sort, perhaps even political insurgents, people who have been wrapped up in some of the revolutionary activity that's been happening in the countryside of Roman-controlled Palestine. We don't know what they did or who they are, but we do know that they did it, right? Isn't it interesting there in those verses how the one criminal basically confesses to their deeds? They say, Jesus doesn't belong here, but we sure do. 
We have been condemned justly for we're getting what we deserve for our deeds that we have done. Two restless souls hanging there on either side of Jesus. And it's fascinating to me how one of those restless souls sounds a lot like early Augustine. Has some of that bravado, right? A little chip on his shoulder. Jesus, if you're the savior, why don't you go ahead and save yourself? And while you're at it, maybe save us too. The world has been cruel to that criminal and he in turn wants to be cruel back. But the other restless heart on the other side of Jesus seems to have found some semblance of peace. He seems to be resigned to his fate. Jesus, remember me, he says. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. To which Jesus replies, truly I tell you, today, Today, you will be with me in paradise. I think there are a few lessons that can be drawn from these verses. One of which is that Jesus, when it comes to matters of salvation, begins at the bottom of the heap. Throughout Luke, we get this language of the first being last and the last being first. This right here is the realization of all those words. Isn't it amazing that the very first person who will join Jesus in paradise is not a Presbyterian, is not a religious scholar, is not a temple priest, but a guilty criminal. Maybe there's hope for us after all. The other thing we can glean from this particular passage, I think, is that Jesus remembers us. That's a really interesting word in these verses. In biblical parlance, remember doesn't necessarily mean to just think of someone's name or to recall some event. Remember is more of an active thing. If you remember someone in the Bible, it means that you act on their behalf. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, act graciously on my behalf. And Jesus does. Jesus remembers us. But perhaps the most interesting thing to me in this brief little story and the bigger story of the cross is this suggestion that the paradise Jesus speaks of is not solely one that will be realized in the future. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, today, not tomorrow, not next week, today, you will be with me in paradise. There's an immediacy here to the promise of God's saving action. There's a suggestion in this story that the cross changes not just our future, but also our present, right? It makes me think of the story of Augustine's conversion. It's perhaps more legend than fact, but there is, I think, some truth to be gleaned from it. The story goes that Augustine and a friend were out in the countryside surrounding Milan. 
And they heard a child's voice somewhere crying out, open and read it, open and read. At first, Augustine thought that it was a child playing a game, but then he thought back on an experience he had had a few months prior when he had gone to hear the Bishop of Milan, Bishop Ambrose, preach. Now, he had gone not for church. He had gone simply for scholarly purposes. After all, he was not a believer in this thing called Christianity, but he was curious about Ambrose's rhetorical style and maybe what he could learn from that in order to teach his own pupils. But in that worship service, something had unlocked, a compartment in his heart that he didn't even know was there had unlocked for Augustine. Ambrose's words and worship that day had opened Augustine to the possibility that maybe Jesus' life and death and resurrection, well, maybe it actually had something to speak to his living for these days. He'd been pondering that moment up until this moment out in the countryside. And when he heard these children's words, open and read, open and read, he finally began to understand that perhaps it wasn't a game, but rather the voice of God inviting him to open the scriptures for himself. And he did, and he turned to Romans 13, where it talks about putting on Christ. And suddenly, suddenly Augustine had this revelation Suddenly he realized that though he had no way to reach that distant shore on his own, there had been a messenger, a savior, you might even say, that God had sent across that sea to come and find him. And then God had crafted a boat in the shape of a cross to carry him back across that great chasm. There's an amazing quote in one of Augustine's works where he says, no one can cross the sea of life, the sea of this world, unless carried over it on the cross of Christ. Right? The cross for Augustine became this symbol, this realization that his restless heart could finally be at rest. It could finally find that wholeness that it had been seeking for so long and the knowledge that God had found him, that God has already found each of us. It's interesting that there's no further mention of these criminals once we turn the page from this passage. We're left to just assume what happens to them. But for me, what I want to believe is that when that criminal hanging there beside Jesus hears those words, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise, he finally found rest in his own heart. He finally found that peace and that wholeness that he had been chasing all his days and the fact that God has found him, that God has found us. Friends, part of what the cross and part specifically of what these words that Jesus speaks from the cross teach us is that salvation is not just some future destination. Now, it is that. We need it to be that. 
God, our world is so broken. Yes, we need God's salvation to be that promise that one day God's will will be done fully and completely here on earth as it is in heaven. We need that promise that God's salvation will make all of creation whole again one day. Yes, it is a promise for the future, but it's also a promise for the here and for the now. You know, so many of us live in that space that Augustine and those criminals lived in all of their lives. So many of us live with those restless hearts, don't we? That longing that we each have for a distant shore, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many different things we go towards, money, greed, power, job titles, It just never quite fully gets us there, does it? Right? So many of us live with these hearts that are sort of a mix of both of those criminals. A little doubt, a little challenge, mixed with a little peace and a little faith. So many of us live lives at the bottom of the heap, whether economically or spiritually. God, is there any way you can possibly reach down far enough to grab my hand because I'm way, way down here? So many of us live wondering, can anything, can anyone possibly save us? On Tuesday night, we had a session meeting and I opened it with a devotional that was really just a reading of a letter that went on longer than I intended. That's my apology to the elders who are here today that were there at that meeting. I'm not going to read the whole letter today, but there's this one part in this letter. It's a letter that a colleague of mine, a former classmate in seminary, shared with me and a group of other pastors not long ago. It's a letter that he is writing or wrote to the next pastor of his church. He has recently felt God's call to serve in a new way, and so he is leaving the congregation that he has been serving now for the past eight or nine years in order to accept this new call. And in the tradition that he pastors in, a new pastor is selected before he even leaves. There's not a search committee. It's more a bishop assigned someone. And so he had this unique opportunity to write a letter to his successor before he even leaves. Now, the church he serves is a little different than this one. The church he serves is in one of the roughest neighborhoods of an urban environment, a, a big city in the north, Pennsylvania. Someone asked me after, not Baltimore, Pennsylvania. This is a neighborhood that is incredibly impoverished, It's a neighborhood that is riddled with crime. Most of the people who come to his church are drug addicts and prostitutes and day laborers. And they don't even come for worship normally. What they come for is the medical clinic that is the central ministry of this congregation. Five days a week, his church offers a free medical clinic staffed by nurses and nurse practitioners to provide care for the least and the lost and the lonely of that community. And so he wrote this letter to his successor describing all the challenges that he was going to face because doing ministry in this context is no walk in the park. There are all sorts of challenges that it comes, comes with ministering to that kind of population, but also in a church that is not unlike this one. It's a beautiful Gothic sanctuary, but it doesn't have an endowment. 
It doesn't have a budget that shows up in the black very often. All the maintenance and upkeep is usually a few years behind schedule. So he writes to his successor describing all the things he needs to be careful about. Some of the people, some of the ideas that this pastor may have because they probably won't work, he says. But then he warns his successor about the bell tower. Literally, the bell tower, he says, is a danger to our community. It probably should have been dismantled decades ago, but it's still up there and it could fall over at any time. He says the bell tower is a grave danger to the community and a pain in the rear, he says. But, he says, hymns play from that bell tower three times a day and they shower prostitutes and drug dealers and kids walking home from school with the sounds of the church. These words Jesus speaks from the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Are like those bells tolling on that neighborhood. They are Jesus' words echoing down upon all of us, a world and people who are so broken, who are so restless. Saying salvation is something in the future, yes, but it is also right here. Today, Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, whatever our hearts are restless with, may they find rest this day and always in that love and that truth and that salvation of our God and Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, shower down upon us the promise of the love that we have known in Jesus, that through his saving life and death upon the cross, we might know your salvation in the future, yes, but also right here, right now, for the living of this day and all the days to come. Amen.